Um, we're, we're continuing our series in Acts, and our passage today is Acts chapter 5, 1 through 11. It's a real doozy, so here we go. Okay, Acts 5, 1 through 11. But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? Have you not lied to man, but to God? When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young man rose and wrapped him and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young man came in, they found her deed. They found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all those who heard these things. This is the word of the Lord. Father, would you come and do what only you can do and what you are so faithful to do week in, week out, day in, day out? And would you open our minds and our eyes and our hearts and our ears to hear your voice through your word and through this very fallible uh, pastor? And would you change us? Lord, don't leave us the same. Would you change us? Would you do your mighty work? You say that your word never returns void. It always accomplishes the purposes for which you send it. And you have sent it for our good and for your glory. So, Lord, do your good work. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so this passage, uh, this, this passage and this message is really one for the skeptics. So if you're here and you are not a Christian, this is a, a, an interesting one. Um, wow, okay, so we have these people who didn't give everything to the church, and so they got struck down by God. Uh, we have some hypocrisy, we have some judgmentalism, we have what appears to be some hunger for money and some hunger for power and some fear-based manipulation. So we're just kind of hitting all the, the big, the big uh, objections that people have to the faith. So this is good right here. Uh, we've been talking about, as we've gone through the book of Acts, this is the beginning of the church. This is like the, the origin story of the church and why we are worshiping the way that we are and doing life together the way that we are, it all started in some sense back here in this, this is chapter one. And one of the things that we've been talking about here at Midtown West is the bad tapes that we have about church and Christianity. And so what I've asked us to do is to consider ourselves on an exploring board uh, that, that we would take from now until Christmas, really lean in and see see for ourselves. And, and something that I think is so important is that we can fall into this trap of thinking that we're victims and that we're powerless. And we're not. We have agency. 
And so uh, as you lean in and engage and explore what the church really is, what Jesus' mission really is, who he really is, what he really wants for us, um, you are free at any point, but I would ask that you would stay till Christmas uh, so that you can get the whole picture here. But you are free at any point to walk away from Midtown West and never come back. And you are free at any point to not just do that, to walk away from Jesus and never come back and walk away from the church altogether. And you need to know that um, because how you engage, uh, it's very important that you know that for how you engage, that this can be a, a very helpful process for you. So here, it, it appears at least on the surface, maybe as you read this, as you hear this, uh, that this is just confirming a lot of stereotypes about the church and about Christianity. But what I think we're going to find here is that uh, Jesus is revealing himself powerfully. Um, he's uncovering an enemy who is at work in the midst of his church, and uh, he's leading us to freedom. And, and I think really uh, the, the enemy has this little box of secrets that he likes to keep locked under our bed. And really this passage is we're kind of pulling that box out and opening it up and seeing what's in there. And so to, to get into our passage, uh, we're going to go back a little bit, just uh, chapter 4, verse 32 through 37, right before this passage, to put it in context. Uh, it says that the Holy Spirit moved in the hearts of the believers. Everybody who believed the good news that Jesus had come and had done everything necessary to save them from their sins, uh, they, they acknowledged that and they joined themselves to this body of Jesus' followers. Um, so it says that the Holy Spirit had moved in the hearts of all these believers and made them, quote, of one heart and one soul. So it's this beautiful picture of the work of God moving in people to give them a love for God that they didn't have before, to give them a love for each other that they didn't have before, and to give them a love for outsiders that they didn't have before. And as they did this, there were needs, uh, material needs that were ex expressing themselves in the community, and there were other members of the community who had means and who had properties that they were able to sell. And so uh, the Holy Spirit was moving in their hearts and causing them to raise their hand and say, you know what, I, I know that that person has some needs. I can help with that. And so they would sell their property and bring the, the proceeds to the apostles who were leading this community and said, hey, I, I know some people have needs. Here's this uh, for you to help them and, and give them what they need. And it was a joy for them to do this. And so at the end of that passage, right before our, our scripture today, we have a, a specific example of Barnabas. And he's going to show up later um, as, as we move through this journey uh, through the book of Acts. But it says that Barnabas was one of these people. He was somebody of means. He had properties that he could sell, and so he did. And he sold one of his properties and laid the money at the feet of the apostles to help because of, of this love in his heart. And so our passage starts at the beginning of chapter 5 with the word but. And so what, what um, the author of Acts, what Luke is saying here is, you're about to hear about this couple, Ananias and Sapphira, that on the surface they did the exact same thing as Barnabas, but something very different was happening. It was not the same thing that Barnabas was doing. It was something very different from what Barnabas was doing. And so, uh, you know, we, we know from the passage what they did was that they lied. They, they said that they sold this piece of property and that they were bringing all of the proceeds and laying it before the apostles' feet. But what they had actually done is they had decided together to save some of the proceeds for themselves and, and to, to hold that back and then to tell everyone that we're bringing the full purchase price of the property to the community. 
And so we have to ask this question, why? Or as, as Peter says here, why have you contrived this deed in your heart? Well, we don't know exactly, but we have some, some ideas from the, the context of the passage. And so I was just thinking, imagine that, you know, this is a relatively close-knit community, so imagine that everybody knows these people. Everybody knows that they're people of means, maybe, that they have this property that's not absolutely necessary to their survival. And they knew that there were needs out there that could be met with this money if they sold the property. So maybe Ananias and Sapphira felt pressure from the community. Maybe they felt pressure to be good. Maybe they wanted to appear better than they were. Maybe they even wanted some glory for themselves. They saw maybe how Barnabas had been received and how the community really held him up as a champion, and they wanted some of that for themselves. Maybe they wanted to be seen and wanted to be praised. Um, but at the end of the day, what's going on here is hypocrisy. Uh, it's that my exterior doesn't match my interior. It's that what I'm presenting to you in word and deed is not what's going on in my heart and my mind. And all hypocrisy is rooted in fear and pride. Fear and pride are two sides of the same coin. It's pride because it's I want glory at any cost, even if I have to be false, because I want to be godlike. And it's fear because I want safety at any cost. I want to avoid condemnation at any cost because I want to be okay. And in both scenarios, with the pride and with the fear, it's really living out of this orphan mentality. It's that no one else is going to take care of me. I can't trust anyone else. I've got to take care of myself. It's depending on the power of man for the glory of man. And so as Peter addresses these people, we see pretty quickly that more than Peter, it's actually God who's addressing these people, and Peter is a vessel for him. God is addressing Ananias through Peter because he sees. And it's, it's God, it's not Peter, and the lie that they lie is not to people, but it's to the Holy Spirit. And, and really what's being said here is this truth that at the end of the day, we all have to deal with God. There's no hiding, <laughs> there's no running, there's no go-between. You and I, every single one of us, will have to face God one way or the other. And God makes plain here what is unseen, that this activity, this decision that they've made, this deed that they've contrived is satanic. He says, Peter says, Satan has filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit, to be false. And so how do we recognize that this is satanic? Again, it's, it's always, satanic activity is always marked by pride and fear. If you go back to Genesis 3, which is uh, the very beginning of Scripture, this is the first interaction that, that Satan, the enemy of God, has with God's people, the, the first people that ever lived. And if you're not familiar, in Genesis chapter 3, um, God has told his people, I've given you everything you need. I've given you an abundance. I've given you myself. You and I are connected. You have everything in abundance for life. And what is also good is that there's this one tree that I'm telling you, you cannot eat of that tree, but you can eat of everything else. And, and we could talk a long time about that passage, but really I think it's just God saying we need to be in right relationship, that I'm God and that you're not, and that's how all this works together. And so what the enemy does is he comes in and he deceives the man and the woman in the garden, and he says, here's a Cliff's Notes, did God actually say, like he's casting doubt of God's motives, and he actually contradicts him directly. He said, you know, God had said, if you eat of this tree, you'll die. 
And he's talking about a spiritual death and a physical death, but a spiritual death that's immediate. And the enemy says, no, no, you won't die. You'll actually become like God. No, no, this is good for you. And so we see the pride and the fear, the pride of you can go get glory for yourself and be godlike. You can test God. You don't have to be afraid of him. You can test him. You can trifle with him. You can go be God yourself. And we get the fear. You can't trust God. He doesn't have your best interests in mind. You have to look out for yourself because nobody else is looking out for you. But we see here the, the reality in this passage. What does God want? And, and it's pretty clear, it's not your money. The sin that these people commit is not that they, have, that they haven't given until it hurts. That's not the sin that we're talking about here. The sin is their hypocrisy, is, is wanting to be godlike and not wanting to trust in God. It's being separated from him. And Peter makes this really plain. He's talking to Ananias and he says, look, this property is yours. Like, this is not communism. This is not socialism. This is not a cult. No one is making you hand over this property. This property was and remained yours. And then when you decided to go sell it, your money that you were holding onto at that point, that also was yours. No one was making you do this. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Remember that. There's freedom. This is not compulsion. No one is manipulating them to make them do this. And guess what? Peter rejects their gift. Like, who does that? We got this startup, this new little church. Somebody's bringing them money. Peter's like, oh, something's better than nothing. I mean, we need, we need a little more, you know? That's not what he does. Peter says, you know what? We don't want any part of this. And why does he do that? Because he's trusting in the Holy Spirit. He's not trusting in man. Because Peter's saying, look, this is God's people. This is God's mission. This is God's everything. And whatever he requires of us, he's going to supply. And what you're doing right now is not from the Holy Spirit. And we don't need it. So you can keep that. God cares not about your money. He cares about your soul. He cares about your heart. And the only reason he cares about your money is because it tells us about what's going on in your heart. That's, that's how we think about giving here at Midtown West, is God does call us to give. If this is our home, if this is our church home, he calls us to give money to this place, to give money to the work, because he calls us to give everything to his mission. He calls us to give our talents, our time, our person, our heart, everything. And our money is a part of that. But, but don't get that order confused. He only cares about your money because it's a, an indicator of where your heart is and where your health is and where you're putting your trust. And Lord, please help us if we ever communicate something different in Midtown West. We do care about your giving because we care about your heart. 
And so what Barnabas and all these other people did was not fruit of their inherent goodness or their own effort. It was life transformation by the Holy Spirit. It was, it was the Holy Spirit of God moving in their hearts and changing them. Because before it was, you know, I've got, we all start off with the orphan mentality. It all starts there. It's, no, no, this is mine. I can't trust anybody. I've got to take care of myself. And the fact that these people like Barnabas and all these other people were saying, man, that person's in need. I got to, get, I got to help them. That is not rooted in humanity. That is rooted in the Holy Spirit because that is brand new. They were not being forced or manipulated. They were freely giving. And uh, this, this takes us to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 7 and 8. It says this, Each one must give, this is Paul talking to the church in Corinth, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. There's a way in which you read that that actually sounds like it's saying the opposite. Like when you give, you better not be reluctant about it. You better have a smile on your face because we want God to be happy with you. That's not what this is saying. It's saying he doesn't want you to give. If you're reluctant to give and if you feel like you're being compelled and manipulated to give money that you don't want to give, don't give it. Because you're not helping him, you're not helping yourself, and you're not helping this community. Something is wrong with you. He wants a cheerful giver because he wants it to be the fruit of the Holy Spirit's work in your life. And if you don't believe me, the very next verse says this, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency and in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. He's saying, look, if you need help, ask God, he'll give it to you. If you need more so that you can give more, ask him. He's gonna supply everything that he requires of you. He's going to give you a heart that is new and different and full of love. So we move on uh, after Ananias drops dead. Three hours later, his wife comes in. She doesn't realize what's happened, and she's, she lies as well, and she drops dead too. And these young men are all of a sudden very busy digging holes. And Peter says... You have agreed together to test the Holy Spirit. I mean, what he says to her, it's not different, really, than what he's saying to Ananias. It's just a different way to say it. And this time he says, what y'all have done is you've agreed together to test the Holy Spirit of God. That word to test is like to, to push the limits, to see what you can get away with. It's the fruit of pride and fear. Again, it's asserting yourself over God to live as you choose and not as he says. If you want to think of a, a very applicable example of uh, what it is to test God, think about the way, I'll use I statements, think about the way that I am uh, in relationship to speed limits. I, d I don't respect speed limits. <laughs> and the only time I slow down and not drive as fast as I want is when I think there's a police officer nearby because I'm still afraid. I don't want a ticket, but like I really don't care about you know, that's, that's my problem, right? That's not a good thing. But I don't want to be a hypocrite, so I'm telling you the truth. Um, that, is, that is this pride fear thing. This pride of like, I don't care. I don't care. I'm just doing what I feel like. But it's also the fear of like, I recognize that there is a power greater than me, and I'm trying to get them off my back so that I can keep on living the way that I want to live. And that's how every human heart is oriented toward God until the Holy Spirit intervenes. 
is we don't really love God. We don't care about the things of God. We don't love what he loves, hate what he hates. We really could give less of a care. <laughs> but we're still afraid of him because deep down in our hearts, we can't escape this reality that there is a God who is more powerful than us. We are, we are beings loose in a universe where we are not the most powerful force. And there are forces that are acting on our lives. And no matter what you believe about God or ultimate beings or spirituality or eternity even, there's something in everyone that can't escape that reality. Like whoever it is, whatever it is, I'm not in control of everything and that's a little scary. And so if I think that God exists, well, then maybe I'm gonna do just enough to get him off my back and keep living however I want. And so when these people drop dead and this community sees it and they hear about it, we get verse 11. Great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. And do you know what? That great fear that fell upon the church was a great mercy. That is a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful gift from God. It's the gift of godly fear that drives slavish fear. You know, this, um, this is a preview of ultimate things. You know, when Jesus was, had his earthly ministry, when he was walking around and he was performing signs and wonders, that's what those things were. Those were, oh my goodness, there's a dragon uh, moving through the grass. Okay. Um, so it's interesting. You can't see it, so that's even weirder. But um, uh, okay, we're back. Um, you know, in Jesus, let's, let's take the healing of Lazarus. If you're not familiar, uh, there's a man who loved Jesus, followed Jesus, um, named Lazarus. He got sick and he died. And he was in the grave for multiple days. And uh, Jesus came and said, Lazarus, come out. And Jesus literally raised a dead man to life. Now, when Jesus did that, he was not primarily concerned that Lazarus had a few more good years. Like, he was not worried about Lazarus like, yes, we got him like 15 more years. This is great. And, you know, and Lazarus was still brothers of Martha. So like, I mean, it's not like he's coming back to greatness here. Um, that's a Bible joke. Um, no, what, what Jesus is doing is he's saying like, look, what I've come to do is is like this. You can't really see what I've come to do. So uh, what I'm doing on an eternal spiritual level, I'm going to show you in a physical way. Like, see how I just raised that dead man to life? That's what I'm doing to your souls. That's why I came. And that's the ultimate end of all who follow me. And this is kind of like the reverse of that. This is, this is just a preview of coming attractions. It's just a fast forward button. Because at the end of the day, there is life in Jesus Christ and there is life in no one else. And so for everyone who has life in Christ, it'll be like Lazarus. And for everyone who is, is apart from him and trying to find glory on their own and depending on themselves and not on him, um, it's gonna be like these two people laying at the feet of the apostle Peter. And so really to see this is a great mercy. It's, it's, it would actually be cruel for God to not wake us up and to leave us asleep if this is reality. I mean, we can disagree on whether this is reality but if that is reality, then it's a great mercy of God to shake us awake and say, hey, hey, you need to pay attention because I love you too much. And that's, you know, we talk about um, here, especially in this, past, in this uh, series, you know, the, the thing I've said a couple times to y'all is whatever you do, however you respond to this, please, please just 
avoid one response, which is just to sit there and smile and nod, but not engage your heart at all. And to let this just wash over you, because that very thing is what God is, is saving this community from here in this passage. He's like, I, I love you too much to just let you sit here and reap the benefits of this community without ever engaging with me. And so what he's doing here is he's, he's waking us up. If you're a Lord of the Rings fan, it's like when um, Gandalf the wizard is with Bilbo the hobbit and he's got the ring and, and it's going to destroy him. It's going to destroy the whole world. And Gandalf needs him to give him the ring and he won't do it. And he starts to think that maybe Gandalf just wants the ring for himself. And so he starts to defend himself against Gandalf and back off. And it says that Gandalf has to get really big and terrify him to sober him up. I need to wake you up to realize like you were talking crazy. And, and that's when Bilbo sort of has this moment of like, oh, what have I done? What am I doing? And he, he gives him the ring. And that's what God is doing here is like, look, you're at this place where you think you can trifle with me and I, I'm full of love and mercy and I've done everything I've done because I love you, but this is not good for you. This is not reality. Um, I'm the God of the universe. It's like in, in Mark chapter four, when Jesus was with the disciples on the water and there's this huge storm and the wind and the waves are all over the place and he just stands up and says, stop. And everything gets calm immediately. And it says that the disciples look at each other and they had great fear and they said, who is this? that even the wind and the waves obey him. Like fear, godly fear is a gift because it makes us lean in and it, it, it helps us live in reality. In Revelation, uh, this is the last book of scripture, it's this apocalyptic vision that the apostle John has given. And he says in chapter one, verse 17, when I saw Jesus as he really is, I fell down like I was dead. Like I couldn't even handle it. That's, that's who this Jesus is. Proverbs 14, 27 says, the fear of the Lord is, is a fountain of life that you may turn away from the snares of death. It's like Aretha Franklin says in, in her song, Think. Like, you better think. And you better let yourself be free. Like, you, need to, you really need to think about this. And this contemplating and pondering this reality is actually gonna lead you to freedom, not slavery. And Psalm 25, 14 says that. It says, that the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. God is, is, it sounds weird, God is scaring us to make us his friends. He is waking us up so that we can live in right relationship with him. So are all Christians hypocrites? Yes. Yes, we are. Uh, is this a sign that Jesus wants that or doesn't care? No, it is not. Is it a sign that he's powerless to do something about it? No, it's not. This is, the church is where the front lines are. This enemy who is at work in the church and in the world, he hates God and he hates the things of God. And so this is where the action is gonna be. But Jesus is changing me. Um, I'm not the same hypocrite I was 10 years ago. I'm not the same hypocrite I was two years ago. He is working his good work out in my life and he is making all things new in his time. Yes, in some sense, we are all hypocrites, but also so are, are every skeptic and atheist. Arguably more so um, because you've come up with your own individualized standard of morality that determines whether somebody's good or bad. Wow. And here's the, the kicker is whatever that standard is, you can't even hold up your own standard. 
If I put a recorder around your neck and recorded you saying, well, this person's a bad person because X, Y, Z, or this person's a good person because X, Y, Z, if we made a list of all those things that you said, you wouldn't even be able to keep your own list. So we are all hypocrites. So what hope is there for the hypocrite? Jesus. Jesus is our only hope because he's the only one who's not a hypocrite. In John 10, he's, he's like the, the anti-Ananias and Sapphira. Instead of bringing apart and saying it's everything because they're under compulsion, Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. I lay down my own life. Nobody takes it from me, but I give it freely. I'm bringing everything from the heart because of a love for God and a love for you so that you can have life. So you don't have to be a hypocrite anymore. You can be honest. And you can come to me and depend on me for everything that you need. So we don't have to fake it. We can be honest and, honest and ask God and our brothers and sisters for help. We can confess where our heart is. We, we must. That's, that's where life is. We have to do this. And we get to do this. We are free to do this to tell the truth about what is inside of us and what is not inside of us. To go to God in prayer like this and to go to each other in our relationships. And even maybe the scariest of all, to talk to ourselves, tell the truth to ourselves. Like, this is who you really are. And you, when you do that, you'll find forgiveness. You'll find new life. And it's the same hope for the skeptic as it is for the Christian. I want us to think about this as we think about our community here at Midtown West. Think about Ananias. What if when Ananias came before Peter and, and instead of uh, following through with this lie, what if he had said, hey, you know what? I'm not telling the truth right now because what Barnabas has in his heart that makes him want to give like this, I don't think I have that. But you know what? I really want it. And I don't know what to do. Would you help me? Would you pray for me? Like imagine how this would have gone differently. And, and that's what I want for us. Is that instead of trying to pretend like we're somewhere, I've had several conversations with some of y'all, even in the last couple of weeks, talking about whether this is a safe place. And what do we do about that? We do this. Like our part, more than anything, is just to be honest about where we are. Don't say something that you don't mean. And don't act like something that's not true. And go to each other and say, hey, my heart's not really here. Would you? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So as we, as we go into worship, what we're going to do is I've asked some people to be available for prayer. And we've got pairs of chairs, and we're going to have a couple of people up front here. Um, just, just come and, and ask for prayer. <laughs> come confess the parts of you that are um, not honest. And, and whatever it is that you want, that you're trying to make yourself appear to be, um, ask this friend, this brother or sister to uh, pray that for you and um, see what God does. Father, um, thank you that you don't leave us to our own devices. Thank you that you love us enough to scare us, to wake us up. Thank you that uh, the pressure is off and we are free, that we don't have to produce anything on our own because you, you have given us everything we need. 
You are full of grace. You are full of mercy. You are full of love for us. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give us the courage and the boldness to come before your throne and ask for exactly what we need. In Jesus' name, amen.